We are here at the hinge point in our Holy Week celebration. Last night we began by thinking about internal challenges, if you will, to the endurance of the church. And we thought about weak faith and the implications of weakness of faith. We thought about human limitations. We thought about Peter and the bold statement, I will never deny you, the others chiming in and commenting the same. And yet there, in the midst of predicted failure that took place, Jesus promising the disciples that he would meet them in Galilee. In the midst of failure, here is gospel hope and promise. You're doing this, I'm doing this. And the latter holds sway. This pattern is then replicated when Jesus goes to pray. And Matthew teases this out in all of the drama and the detail of the text. The slow pace, the triplet of prayer sleeping. And, and we thought about this last night in terms of submission, sleep, submission, sleep, submission, sleep. And then the Son of Man statement that Jesus is going to be betrayed. Look, Jesus says, behold, your translation might have, the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. And, and then he, in all of his truly human, truly divine courage, says, let's go. And the strangeness of that in the environment, because around him, all the humans are faltering, and he is walking right into the danger zone. He is walking right into the fire, so to speak, with great courage. This is truly God, truly man. Behold, let's go. And it's not let's flee, let's go straight ahead. And that's where we find ourselves tonight. If you join me in Matthew 26, we're toward the end of the chapter. We'll be looking here at Matthew 26 and then into chapter 27. And tonight, we want to shift our gaze to external concerns. If last night, as I said, was a mirror and a scrapbook, that is, we're looking at ourselves and looking at the past, what has taken place in the past and ourselves at the current moment in the midst of weak faith and human limitations, our own falterings at time, our own limits and weakness. We were talking about missions earlier and just today to point to another flag on our wall. I was having time today over coffee with Todd Price, one of our supportive missionaries, a Bible translator, and what a task, what work, what labor. Someone think a Bible translator, someone who just sits in a dusty office and all day trying to put this together. No, it's sort of like a business model, and he has to hit 11 verses a day every day to stay on track. And it's, it's laborious, and it's monitored, and it, it really is a business in, in, in some ways to get this done. And we were just talking about human limitations, 
I have so much I can do. If I have to get these 11 verses, it means I'm not going to be able to get this done. Not, I'm just learning to live within that and human limitations. And the human limitations last night of tiredness and sleep. And they fell asleep over and over again. Despite what we would think of excitement, they're still sleeping. And this thinks, takes us then to tonight. So if, if last night we're thinking about our own limitations, our own weaknesses, tonight we're looking outward. Just as last night we recognized that, wait, our own reflection in a mirror at times, our own scrapbook is not all that great. If we're honest, we're sometimes thinking, how could the church endure it all? <laughs> I mean, if we look internally very long, it's not a good picture. And let's be honest, if we were God, we'd choose a different means. But this is what he has done. And as we recognized last night, there's, there's room for hope just tonight the same. We're looking outside. So if last night is a mirror and a scrapbook, tonight is binoculars and strategy charts. Tonight we're looking outward at binoculars and threats that could come, personal threats and corporate threats. We're thinking about how we might strategize in, in light of these. We're going to scope them out and see them and then strategize some toward, toward the end of our time. But what we're going to recognize tonight is that though there are obvious personal and corporate threats against Jesus here, these, again, are the very means that God uses to accomplish His plan of redemption. As we approach Matthew 26 and we begin at verse 47, having left off last night in verse 46, we recognize just by the numbers in the chapters where we are at in Matthew. This is true in many of the Gospels, though John's a little bit different because you get large number counts of verses in John 6. Uh, earlier in the Gospels than toward the end. But here we're reminded, we're here at verse 46 and into verse 47. These chapters have many verses. We're reminded that in the flow of the Gospels, for Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the last third of the Gospels is the last week of Jesus' life. There's much more detail about the last week of Jesus' life than any other portion, far and away. You, you've got 36 months of Jesus' life in two-thirds of the gospel and one week in the last third. And that means that when we get to Holy Week, there's a lot of information and the sermon structure is different. There's a structure that requires a lot of reading and just following the flow of the text. And we recognize that the inspired writers compose these Gospels in such a way that if, if, you, if you'll just allow yourself to read larger sections, you realize the sermonic character of the text. It's almost like it preaches itself. And, and the task of the preacher is just to recognize some divisions, summarize the basic theme, and then follow what is taking place. And, and what we have here in this message could be preached from 
Mark or, or Luke, John, some differences certainly along the way, especially as we get to Sunday morning, some of the differences that, that Matthew will bring out. But here, what we recognize is the, the pattern of Judas and his personal betrayal of Jesus, and then a corporate structure from the Sanhedrin, Pilate's involvement, the crowds. But all of this, it doesn't matter which of the Gospels you're looking at, over and over again, though Jesus is being betrayed, he's in charge. Though he's accused, he's obviously one who could stop the whole process, and he says so. These threats are actually God's means for the plan of redemption. And that will help us to think about threats today. Not in the exact same way, but under the same sovereign God. And that will be our framework. So join me then, Matthew 26. We need to have verses 45 to 46 ringing in our ears. Really, in the shadow of verses 45 and 46, we will follow through chapter 27. Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the time is near. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's go. See? My betrayer is near. That leads us to thinking about verse 47 and the first idea that we're looking at tonight. Personal opposition. Personal opposition. My betrayer is near. Remember, Jesus pulls Peter, James, and John aside, and yet he doesn't say our betrayer. He recognizes this and makes it clear for them. This is about him. My, it's, it's opposition toward him. Though the disciples fear it and recognize the threat, it's toward them. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, suddenly arrived. Is a bit of irony. Do you see it there? Suddenly he arrived. But it wasn't sudden for who? <laughs> it wasn't sudden at all. Sudden in the sense of Judas and his perspective and those with him. We're going to catch him off guard. Well, he's coming. I know exactly what's going to happen. A large mob, swords, clubs were with him. And again, they were, they were trying to surprise him, take him uh, uh, unawares, so to speak. Judas had told them, the one I kiss, he's the one. And that's exactly what Judas did. And Jesus, again, addresses him full of irony in these chapters. It doesn't matter which gospel it is. There's just irony at every paragraph. Friend! <laughs> Friend. Why have you come? Then they came up, took hold of Jesus, and arrested him. At that moment, one of those with Jesus reached out his hand. We understand it to be Peter, and drew his sword and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his ear. And Jesus told him, Put your sword back in place, because all who take up a sword will perish by a sword. Or do you think that I cannot call on my Father and He will provide me at once with more than twelve legions of angels? How then would the Scripture be fulfilled that it must 
happen this way. So much could be said in just verses 53 and 54 from a perspective of victory through defeat. God's sovereign use of creatures with all of their agency humanly opposing Jesus is God's plan and Judas is leading the way in this. And, and this will help us as we come to our conclusion tonight thinking about strategy and binoculars and looking out to recognize that even our opponents, even the most personal opponents are not free creatures ultimately. They are responsible human agents, but our God reigns over people who oppose us as well. And this was so that Scripture must be fulfilled in a very specific way. I'm generalizing an idea from a very specific point in verse 54 that, brothers and sisters, becomes the crux of the New Testament. At the end of Luke, when Jesus is resurrected and he goes to the, the, the group in Jerusalem with the Emmaus disciples there and they're gathered and, and the other disciples there, it's, it, the text reads in such a way that Jesus had to lecture over and over again from the law and the prophets that the Christ must suffer. That's the whole point they couldn't get. How is it that the Christ must suffer? Jesus says it right here in verse, the scripture must be fulfilled in this way. This personal opposition is not opposed to God's plan. This is God's plan. Our task is endurance and to follow through, even for Jesus here. And Jesus chides them a bit. Verse 54, if you come out with swords and clubs, notice verse 55 uh, again here, the personal pronoun, it's first person singular reference, just as it was back in verse 46. My betrayer, I were a criminal. Jesus is bringing up the very fact through grammar and personal reference that this is about him. It's personal opposition. They're not after Peter, yet Peter steps in. They're not after the others. It's about him. Every day, I used to sit teaching in the temple complex. You didn't arrest me. But all this has happened that the prophetic scriptures would be fulfilled. And right then, strike the shepherd and, verse 56, The sheep scatter. Personal opposition and corporate opposition. When we transition to verse 57 and we go down through verse 68, we're then going to skip ahead to chapter 27 and pick it up at verse 15, about halfway through the chapter, a bit more than that. And a bit less than that, rather, about the first third of the way through the chapter, and we're going to see corporate opposition. There are other elements of personal opposition we could look at and others of, of corporate together, in a sense, but we're going to focus on these two, the Sanhedrin and the crowds. The Sanhedrin, this group of 70 Jewish leaders composed of Sadducees mainly, but, but Pharisees represented here, and scribes. And these individuals are the, the power brokers of the day. 
These are the ones who roam and trust to keep the peace. These are greedy individuals, as we'll see on Sunday morning, and the use of money to pay off soldiers. What is in the, the very framework, the very core of the Sanhedrin's mind is expressed exactly in John 11 after Lazarus is raised from the dead and many people are coming to Jesus because of the resurrection of Lazarus, the Sanhedrin gathers together and they say, what are we going to do? If we continue to let this man carry on this way, the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. Their goal as a corporate body, though there's some divergence amongst them, is to hold the people. So when they come together against Jesus here, this is not like it hasn't been planned. This goes back to John 11, several days beforehand. And they want to do away with Jesus. This is a true corporate opposition. It's planned. They've been thinking for days about it since the resurrection of Lazarus. They recognize that at this festival, many people could turn away. Verse 57, those who'd arrested Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest where the scribes and the elders had convened. Again, it's planned. Peter followed at a distance right to the high priest's courtyard. He went in, was sitting with the temple police. He wanted to see what would come about afterward. And, and then the attention again turns to the leaders. Verse 59, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false testimony against Jesus. And they already had the sentence in mind to put him to death. This is a corporate plan. This is organized, it's coordinated, and it's coordinated from the most powerful people in Judea. We will see in just a moment in the, the flow of the text from, we, from we talking here about the corporate nature of this Jewish body to the Roman governor giving in to them. Again, this is, this is the, the world of the day right here. And, and the Jews hold great power. Not here if we would continue into Acts 12. Why is it that Herod, Agrippa I, wants to please the Jews? He has Peter arrested and James killed to please the Jews because they hold sway over the people. And the last thing any governor or leader wants is problems amongst the people because if they're in charge and there are problems amongst the people, there are now problems with that leader and the emperor. This is a corporate opposition. That's what I'm getting at. This is a body politic that is powerful. Verse 60, they couldn't find any evidence. Finally, they find some statement. I can demolish God's sanctuary and rebuild it in three days. Do you have an answer? Verse 62. Verse 63. Again, we've read this. Jesus keeps silent. By the living God, I place you under oath. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said it, Jesus told him. But I tell you in the future, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. 
just what we have seen in Daniel 7 and that casts a shadow through the, the New Testament. We recognize Jesus describing himself as truly human, but truly divine. Truly here, four square in the world, just like any other Palestinian male, but obviously different through miracles and these kind of cryptic statements about this otherworldly figure from Daniel who everyone in the tradition recognized was an individual who had direct access to God, God on God's throne, who received a kingdom. That's why, verse 65, it was no problem. It, it's as, this is so, again, there's so much irony. It's, it's almost funny, really. Jesus does them a favor to speed things up. They can't find someone to give any truthful accusation that will stick to Jesus. So he goes ahead and accuses himself. If you can't find someone to make me guilty, I'm the son of man. Get started. It is. It's funny. It, it is hilarious. That, verse 65, my translation has an exclamation point after he is blasphemed and right. He's blasphemed. Okay. Jesus is like, they got it. Okay. They got what I said. We don't need any more witnesses, verse 65. You heard it. He deserves death. This is, this is corporate opposition. It's coordinated. We have to understand that this wasn't just, well, we'll see what happens when we get together. Sometimes you get a group of people together and there's this great momentum and all of a sudden a decision is made. Just, that it wasn't like that. This was people working behind the scenes for several days. Okay, we're going to get him somehow. Now we've got Judas. Word spreads. Let's get the Sanhedrin together. We, we know what we're going to get after. And what's fascinating here, in the midst of this corporate opposition, even though they're trying really hard, they can't, by their own rules, get some kind of testimony against Jesus. And the irony and the comedy is God's glory. I'll give them one. Because, because God rules over all opposition. This will steal our spines. If it was true Good Friday, it's true every Friday. If it was true then, it is true in Hollywood today, in New York City, in Washington, D.C., in Moscow, in Beijing, in your boss's office, in your family's home. There is no corporate opposition that is outside the sovereign hand of God. And that's displayed right here. Doesn't mean things are going to be easy. Verse 67. If it happened to Jesus, and this is exactly what Jesus tells the disciples in John 15. The world hates you, but understand, it hates you because it hated me first. And if they did this to me, they're going to do it to you. So the tension here is, yes, God is sovereign over this. 
He, he rules over corporate opposition just as he does, does personal opposition. That does not mean there's escape for us. It, it might mean that life's really hard still. That's why over and over in Revelation, it's going to be today, I just mapped out the rest of the sermon calendar for 2023 and have it, have it all mapped out. So I'm just scanning through, working on this, and thinking it through. I think you know what we're going to hear over and over again is our job is to endure and hope in God despite all that comes. And it's going to come, and it's going to be hard, and we have to discipline ourselves to hope in God and recognize that his love for us does not mean life's always going to be easy. It might be very hard, and he's sovereign over it. They spit on him, verse 67. Some slapped him. They mocked him, verse 68. Some seasons of the year in Holy Week, we spend time in different Gospels, and we've been in Mark before. And Mark's Gospel at the end in Holy Week and Good Friday is most pronounced in the mocking of Jesus. Corporate mocking and being made fun of. Let, let that minister to you. So, this is Jewish corporate opposition, and we just turn then to, to general opposition. Chapter 27 and verse 15. Here's general corporate opposition. At the festival, the governor's custom was to release to the crowd a prisoner they wanted. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Who is it you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Messiah? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. Pilate knew exactly what the Sanhedrin had done, just as John 11 said. If we let this man go, the Romans are going to come and take away our place in our nation. They were envious of Jesus' power, the following that he had. Pilate's wife warned him. Nonetheless, verse 20, the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds. And they corporately asked for Jesus to be executed. They want Barabbas, and Pilate says, What should I do with Jesus? And they shout, Crucify, crucify, over and over again. Pilate, washing his hands, innocent of what he is about to sentence Jesus to. And all the people, notice the corporate voice, verse 25, look at their, their embracing of guilt. His blood be on us and on our children. It's one thing to embrace guilt for yourself. Let our descendants bear it as well. This is, this is intergenerational corporate opposition. So Pilate hands Jesus to be crucified. All of this leads us then to the end, the, the last sections of chapter 27, the last half. 
the military mocks Jesus, verses 27 through 31, and then he's crucified. And this is God's plan. And we'll see it emphasized in a couple of specific statements in the progress of the chapter. But we've already noted tonight there's personal opposition, but Jesus knows exactly what's going on. He references himself over and over. He makes sure in the very grammatical choices that he expresses, his language, his words make it clear this is about me, even though he still has the disciples with him at that point. And they still scatter. And then we've seen this corporate opposition, first from the Sanhedrin and then from these crowds. And it's obvious that this is coordinated. The Sanhedrin coming together following the resurrection of Lazarus, the crowds here together, perhaps under the influence of the chief priests and others. And this leads us to his crucifixion. Verse 37 is where we'll begin just reading here. Jesus is crucified and they hang above him this sign. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And people mocked him because of that, calling him the Son of God. Verse 42, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. And you can hear them laughing. Let him come down. Then we'll believe he's put his trust in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. He said, I'm God's son. And, and what is fascinating is this almost becomes a table of contents for what the apostles say about Jesus in Acts what Paul writes about Jesus in his epistles, what the author of Hebrews writes about Jesus. This is a tape. Their very words, the words that they are speaking in opposition to Jesus, become a table of contents for the New Testament because of the resurrection. What's fascinating is that the resurrection that we are on the way to, the crucifixion anticipates that. This becomes exactly what it is. Yes. He is the king of Israel, the king of the Jews, because he rose from the dead. He is God's son and his son raised up from the dead. We see these ideas that are listed right here from the lips of the ones mocking Jesus. These become bullet points in Acts and in Paul's letters, Hebrews as well. And they regularly collocate that with references to the resurrection. So he's on, he's on the cross hearing these things, and all this anticipates Sunday morning. It is, it is profound how God is turning the very words that they say around on them while Jesus is on the cross anticipating the resurrection. Verse 45 and 46, familiar verses. It's dark, and this is God's signification. Uh, uh, the first, verse 45, of several natural phenomena that occur. The, the, the whole domain of catastrophe and alterations of the heavens and the earth. There's an earthquake that takes place and the dead are, are raised in anticipation. A sort of first fruits of Jesus' resurrection as they, they come out. Jesus cries out at the the third hour, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me feeling all the weight of human sin? 
and then he dies. Verse 50, the sanctuary curtain is torn from top to bottom, and then the earthquake occurs. Bodies come out. We've seen this sequence of natural phenomena that take place, accentuated by the tearing of the temple curtain from top to bottom. And the cryptic statement from one of the guards standing there, verse 54, this centurion and others with him, this man really was God's son. Well, the scene ends with women coming to Jesus and his body is taken. He's laid in this tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Somehow he has great access to Pilate and is a trustworthy, wealthy individual. We know from John's Gospel that Nicodemus joins in and they bury Jesus wrapped in clean, fine cloth, verse 59, and a new tomb is used. This cut rock that is there and a large stone is rolled over it and verse 61 will close with Mary Magdalene and the other Mary seated there facing the tomb. Matthew leaves us in such a view that, that they, are, they are watching as this is sealed up. And, and here it is. We understand it and it will be clear that this is the means of God's redemption. And all the opposition has led to right here from the betrayal in the garden to the corporate opposition of the Sanhedrin and the crowds to Jesus on the cross is led right here. We started tonight with the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hand of sinners. Let's go to these ladies looking at a sealed tomb. That's, that's our journey tonight, and we end, we end right here. And if, if we didn't know the whole story, we would think this is really bad we would think he said he was going to be the son of man winner let's go and you've got two jewish women looking at a sealed up tomb with his body inside it seems like it didn't work out that's at at the 30,000 foot level that's what you'd say it didn't seem to work but we'll see this is the very plan of god for redemption, and we understand this again from the trajectory of the Old Testament, and it's explained in the New. But at this moment, that's that's where we're at. And this opposition externally, if we're looking at binoculars and, and looking through binoculars and surveying the landscape, we get our strategy charts here. And how are we going to to look at opposition today? How are we going to deal with personal opposition when when it comes? from the world in, in all of its forms, politics, media, various kinds of pressure, personal attacks, or more corporate attacks on, on churches from larger groups who continue to ebb uh, the, the freedoms away and, and put us in, in crosshairs. What are we going to do? I want to set out three ideas for us tonight in terms of strategy. If you were not with us last night, some of what I'm saying tonight is similar to what I talked about last night 
in terms of the gospel and the Christian doctrine of salvation and what that means in terms of you know, God's electing power and regeneration, the church and death and glory. Those, those four ideas we gathered up from the narrative of Matthew that we looked at last night. Tonight we've scanned a large section of narrative and, and this, these ideas are not so much just doctrinal pillars but statements that I think can help us in terms of strategy. I think these help us to think about external threats. So when we are looking out and we have our binoculars and we're trying to think of how are we going to endure when these threats feel very real against us. I'm not going to say anything novel beyond what we would observe in the book of Acts in the letters of the New Testament and how the first Christians operated. And we'll tease these ideas out even further Sunday morning. First is this. We must robustly commit to gathering. Robustly commit to gathering as a church. This is how we deal with external threats. We must be robustly committed to gathering as a church. Gathering on Sundays corporately, gathering in small groups, this energizes and focuses us. Gathering in a large group and in smaller groups of various kinds, our MCGs in other ways, formal and informal, not just in, in the, the formal uh, ebb and flow of the church calendar, but informally, trying to hang out, connect in different ways to, to be encouraged. How has the, the Lord encouraged you? What are you learning? Grabbing that lunch with someone, trying to make a phone call, having someone in your home, these kinds of informal connecting points are gathering that fuels and focuses us. I, I want to, uh, I'm not a prophet in any way, but I, I just want to look ahead and, and make the statement that I think in the years to come, our gathering places are going to be more important are gathering places and the institutional structures of churches. Even today, in, in looking at our, our church, the institutional structures that we have in place, we appreciate, I think, as a congregation, how these are bearing fruit in, in us and, and strengthening us, but these also become habits for us, expectations, practices, that can galvanize us so that the pressures outside don't seem as strong because of the structures and support and strength we have inside together. Leaders in various roles, meetings that occur, expectations that are met so there is stability here. And places are a part of that. Not cathedrals in terms of facilities, but facilities that meet the needs of people, that things work, and we can come together and meet and encourage and connect. Church buildings are helpful because you get a lot of people together. You can get people in homes, and that's, that's helpful. You don't need a building to be a church. But if you can gather more people and be encouraged in that way, there's a sense of strength in numbers. And so your participation in those gatherings is important. I think church buildings, and I appreciate so much those who help our building to be maintained and upgraded and, and all the rest that we want to do in 2023 and in the years ahead to make sure that we have a stable, 
gathering place. Second, doing good. First, gathering. Second, doing good. I'm holding Carl Truman's book, Strange New World. Our elders are reading through this now. Some of you have have read through this. Uh, Carl Truman, um, historian, philosopher, uh, really has his finger on the pulse of culture and history and why we are where we are today. And toward the end of the volume, he makes some application points in terms of what we should do in this strange new world where the expressive individualism of, of our culture and the therapeutic self and all of this. How do we deal with this in, uh, in, in life? Many Christians talk of engaging the culture, he writes. In fact, the culture is most dramatically engaged by the church presenting it with another culture, another form of community rooted in her worship practices and manifested in the loving community that exists both in and beyond the worship service. The church protests the wider culture by offering a true vision of what it means to be a human being made in the image of God. It is not expressive individualism. It is forgiveness of sin and participation in the body of Christ. When compared to some of the ways many Christians, right and left, uh, today engage culture with respect to ancient apologists, we see that in the ancient world, they did not spend their time denouncing the evils of the emperor and his court. Rather, they argued positively that Christians made the best citizens, the best parents, the best servants, the best neighbors, the best employees. And that they should thus be left alone and allowed to carry on with their day-to-day lives without being harassed by the authorities. If we are going to say, leave us alone, we've got to be people who are doing good, taking care of ourselves, and looking to help the world. We must be the best employees, the best neighbors, the best citizens, so that when we say, leave us alone, we can be trusted to be left alone and not dependent Doing good, gathering, and doing good. This is a habit for MCC. We, even tonight, thinking about Luke and Sarah coming home, extended family, but so many ways that you all are trying to do good. Just last night, Pastor Clay being here and their church trying to open up to this group and that group that can meet there and people coming and going constantly. It's like people in the neighborhood have keys. Come, use the building. Yes, here. What can we do to help out? That kind of a benevolent attitude Basically, let's turn the tables on the authorities. You actually need us. (laughs) Who else is going to take care of society's problems? If we're in your crosshairs, recognize you're actually shooting yourself here. We're the ones kind of paying the bills, so let's just outdo them. Third, another G, and it's don't forget the grave, that the grave is not the end. We mentioned this last night, and it's worth returning to tonight. We gather, that's on our strategy charts. We've got to gather. We have a 
place where we can all meet together. We have scattered kinds of meetings. We're going to meet. We're going to gather. We're going to be encouraged. We recognize that's crucial. We are going to gather. We're going to do good. And, and we are going to remember the grave is not the end. The worst thing, this we're going to see this over and over in Revelation, those who dwell on the earth, those, the earth-dwelling ones, the earth-dwelling ones, the earth-dwelling ones, the earth over and over in Revelation. Listen, the earth-dwelling ones may feel threatened by us and they may come against us, but that's fine because our dwelling is not here. One of the great values of going through Revelation the rest of 2023 is that your eyes are going to be raised on where your citizenship really is, in heaven. That's where your home is. That's where your dwelling is. And the worst thing they can do to us is kill us. That's all the power they've got. They cannot take away the atonement. They cannot take away forgiveness. They cannot take away God's spirit that's in us that guarantees the next life. They can't take away our resurrection body. So you're all good. It might be really tough. might be spit on. might be hit. But that's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper, isn't it? To remind us of what He endured. And, and our place. Our, our place in the world is not to be applauded by the world. We need to remove that kind of thinking and waiting for the world to stand up and recognize how great we are. That's not going to happen. We just endure, and we know how great God is, and it's what's to come that matters. If you would grab the cup and the cracker as the musicians come. you'd open up that cellophane and grab hold of the cracker and remember Jesus' body that was broken for us. And that brokenness is our victory. Brothers and sisters, this is victory in Jesus. We eat in remembrance of Him. Let's do so.